Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, where Hartman Rocks in Gunnison is now open and riding really well. And you should come check it out for yourself because the riding is going to be really, really good this weekend in Hartman's, which is why you're going to find me out there. Okay, today on the show, we have the great Casey Brown. Now, as many of you know, Casey is a true pioneer of women's freeride mountain biking. She is certainly a visionary, and she is definitely an original. And I am really excited to share this conversation with you because Casey lays out so well just how persistent she had to be to get to where she is today. And I really think we all ought to be grateful for the path that she bushwhacked and hammered out for so many others. I love this conversation and I am confident that you will too. And so let's get to it. Well, Casey, how are you today and where are you today? I'm good. It's a beautiful day out here in Revelstoke. It's a uh, bluebird. It's been nice the last like three days. So uh, it feels like spring has arrived and it's amazing. We just keep talking about here that in, you know, mid-April, there's kind of this sweet spot of the year where we both get to like ride mountain bikes and go ski touring. And it's just, you just wake up and you're like, what kind of mood am I in today? Or what's the weather like? And it, it's a lovely time of year. It is. It's, it's really magical after a long winter and having all these sunny days and warmth. It's, it's so nice. And have you been spending time primarily in Revelstoke? I mean, I know we've got COVID things going on and the fact that, you know, we're just coming out of winter, but what's your program been like in terms of travel or not traveling? Yeah, I eventually, this is the first time in a long time that I've spent over a year in Canada. So yeah, it's been a really nice time just, you know, appreciating the seasons. And, um, I've been back and forth from Vernon to Revelstoke cause Brett lives in Vernon. Um, and now I'm in Revelstoke full time. My house is finished. So I'm, I'm living in my house. Yeah. And it's, it's great. It's, um, yeah, it was the perfect year for, for building a house and kind of doing all that stuff. All right. Well, we got a lot of stuff I kind of want to cover today. So I think we dive in. So you're currently in Revelstoke, but this is a pretty far ways away from where you kind of started. So Let's talk a little bit about sort of the early days and growing up in New Zealand. Yeah. So I was born in Queenstown um, back in 1990. <laughs> Aging myself here. Uh, yeah. Queenstown, New Zealand. But like we lived on the West Coast of, the New, of New Zealand, South Island, uh, on the Tasman Sea. My dad was a cray fisherman. Uh, and we lived in a remote location when I was really young. So we lived um, about a six-hour hike or a 10-minute helicopter ride or a few hours in a boat or how else can you get there? 
this is this is how I know that this was a remote location because you're describing the different forms of travel that one would take to actually access it. Yeah. You know? Not many people are like, it took what was it, 10 minutes by helicopter or 20 minutes? Yeah, 10 minutes in a heli from the from the nearest um field. <laughs> so yeah, it was rugged. It's rugged country. So I remember when we were, um, would go into town every three to five months to get supplies. And I remember as a kid, as soon as you're two years old or three years old, you have to walk. Like you're not, people aren't going to carry you because there's groceries to be carried. There's supplies to be carried. So the first leg of the trip, we had a four-wheeler, like a quad bike. And a lot of the groceries would go on the quad bike and everyone would take turns driving this quad bike as far as we could into this rugged terrain. And then there was this tree, tree we parked the quad bike under and traded it for a canoe to get across this river. And we had this canoe that would pile everyone into. And some like Sometimes the river would be low enough that we could actually wade across. And sometimes our whole family would be holding on to one stick all together to stay connected across this high flow river that was like pretty dangerous. Um, but yeah, sometimes we'd walk, sometimes we'd take the canoe across this river and then park the canoe at the tree on the other side. And then there was all these milestones for us kids. Cause imagine taking a modern day kid in the city for a six hour hike into the bush. Like you have to have some kind of excitement. So we had this bush where there was orange peels underneath it. And we're like, okay, we got to make it to orange peel bush. And then there was the next milestone was cow patty rock, this rock that looked like it had a cow pie on it. And then the next one would be like this tree that would get to, you know, and, and every leg of the trip of the hike, you would kind of be excited to see the next part. But yeah, I remember as a kid, this mission was like, it, yeah, it was great. It was awesome. It was like, yeah, I mean, you're carrying all your groceries, you're carrying as much as you can. And I mean, sure. There's a lot of like some tears and some crying, but that's, that's part of it. And then eventually, uh, would make it to our homestead. Now, how long did you live here? Well, I lived in Barn Bay. We were back and forth from 2000 or from 1994 to 1996. So we we're back and forth from there to the, to inland where we bought a big farm. So, we would travel back and forth, but up until I was about four years old, we were hundred percent there. And then back and forth a lot, uh, moving stuff. Cause, uh, we were in the transition of moving to the farm, 316 acre farm. And what's the current status? Do, do you still have family around Queenstown and yeah, I do. I have six aunties and an uncle in New Zealand and over 20 something cousins with more children. Like I have a huge family in New Zealand, massive. And, um, the farm is still there. My mom lives on it still. The house in Barn Bay is still there. It's, it has a new owner and the lease got sold to a, yet to the new owner. And so it's rented out as a, a hunting cabin, I believe. 
Um, yeah, I've gone back a few times actually. It's it's uh, much different, but it's been built up. I take it since then. Is that what you mean by much different? Well, you know, when you live in it as a home, as compared to it being somewhere where you go to drink beer <laughs> and uh, hunt, for, hunt for deer type of thing. So yeah, it was a home before, and now it's a it's definitely a cabin style place, which is great. It's awesome for people to get out there and experience experience the uh, last frontier of New Zealand. Given that from what you've just told us, it might be a little less surprising if you had gone on to become like a world-class canoeer <laughs> or, or canoeist. I'm afraid I don't know how, what, what is one, what, what's the term? So by the way, what is the term? I don't term? even know. Canoe. Someone Both who sound canoes. wrong. C- canoe. Yeah. Canoey. I'm quite, I'm quite sure. <laughs> canoey. I like that. Canoey. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, a world-class canoey. Well, so when did mountain bikes or I guess just first bicycles maybe, but when did bikes and bicycles and mountain bikes kind of first come into your world? Well, bikes were always kind of part of our childhood. My brother was really into bikes. Like that was his absolute passion. Like ever since he was little, just obsessed with wheels and obsessed with wrenching on bikes. And as the youngest of five, my siblings were my heroes. So looking up to my siblings, like you're always trying to follow them around and keep up. Right. Um, yeah. So seeing him get obsessed with bikes and the passion behind that, that got me interested in bikes. I was in New Zealand and Sam and Jennifer, my older siblings were moved to Canada with my dad when my parents split up. So me and Eleanor and Jasmine were in New Zealand and yeah, the family had like a very wide divide, like going uh, halfway around the world. Right. So missing my brother and missing my sister kind of made, I don't know when you, miss someone that much you think of ways you can get closer to them without actually getting closer to them and so I yeah I had like this bike in New Zealand I biked to school every day and it was um the beginning I guess and my dad came down and helped me fix it up and and then in 2002 when I moved to Canada um my dad built this rickety old bike for me (laughs) out of scraps and yeah, it would make me go on these massive rides with him. And I hated it because I was on this rickety old bike that didn't work at all. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's okay. Pause. How rickety are we talking? I mean, for some reason you're like this rickety old bike and you've also mentioned orange peels. What are we talking about here? <laughs> well, the orange peels, they, de- they take like five years to decompose. So it was actually a thing, this orange peel bush, because the orange peels are still there year after year. <laughs> so that's why that bush was called orange peel bush, because they didn't go away. This bike my dad built, he said it was really good for going down hills. Had a 26-inch front wheel, 24-inch rear wheel, but in turn would make me pedal up hills to all the cross country trails on this bike. So going up hills on this bike was the worst thing ever. Cause you're, yeah, the hill is twice as steep as a kid. You don't want to make that kind of stuff harder. Cause that's the miser- miserable side. So eventually I, um, yeah, he got me this GT avalanche hardtail with disc brakes and it was great. It was the best 
it was the best kids bike for the early 2000s. I reckon it was like one of those, I don't know, the kids bikes now are amazing and no wonder we have so many kids killing it on bikes because they're actually making them properly for their size and weight. But yeah, I was lucky enough to get a bike. Did you and your dad invent the mullet bike though? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> I cannot take claim to that. He, my dad was an obsessed with chopper bikes. So for a long time, like he would make, he would modify kids bikes into chopper bikes, like extend the forks, put a tiny wheel on the front, like make these bikes into like full out full on choppers. Cause he used to make like chopper motorcycles before those were even a thing back in like the sixties. He was obsessed with that. And this was kind of a spin off of that. It was a choppered out mullet bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a choppered out mullet it bike. Was serious. You guys were way ahead of your time. I know. <laughs> back near Orange Peel Bush. Yeah. yeah. This is amazing. By the way, have you how much time have you spent on a like modern day mullet bike? And were you like, oh my God, this reminds me of when I was a little kid? I actually haven't spent any time on a mullet bike. I'm currently building up a Trek session 29er as a mullet, um, that grow cycling foundation one that I got painted up with the hands on it. Um, so that will be a mullet bike. And also I'm, I'm expecting to see a high pivot show up any day now. So, uh, yeah, I'll have one of those, uh, also mulleted out. I'm pretty sure. Cause pretty excited about this mullet thing. Okay. But you've yet to actually ride one. Yeah. But I've ridden 29ers a ton and I can see where a mullet bike will be a benefit for me. I have short legs and sometimes on the steeps on a 29er, the wheel does hit me in the butt. So, uh, but I do love the traction of a 29er and the stability around corners. So I think that it'll be the perfect combination. I'm hoping if my calculations are correct, if your calculations are correct, I really, I really, really now hope that your first thought is, is to like, Oh my God, this reminds me of when I was a little (laughs) kid. That would make me very, very happy. That's cool. I also love the fact that you were talking about how the bike served as a point of connection, you know, with your siblings You know, I I feel like nowadays with a lot of friends or, you know, my parents or something like that, I feel like a lot of the time it seems like movies or TV shows or an album will kind of function that way. It's like, did you see this? Have you heard this? And, you know, people get like excited and those things kind of serve as a common point of connection. So I, I like the idea that for you it was a bike. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you have maybe the most amazing childhood that I've ever heard of. And then at, I think I have it right, around age 11, you make the move to Revelstoke. Yeah. 2002, I moved to Revelstoke. Tell us a bit about that chapter. Well, I was supposed to come to Canada to visit my dad for about a month, I think. Maybe it was six weeks. So I... This was my first time doing a solo trip across the ocean. So I had to, um, fly semi alone, like a friend of a friend offered to help me 
like through the airports and stuff. Cause my connection went through LA, which is a terrible idea. And I had this handwritten letter from my mom saying that I was allowed to travel with this person that I barely knew. <laughs> how do you think, how do you think America took that? <laughs> Did not check out. So this person that I was traveling with, we're going through LA airport after 14 hours or something flying like in like for a kid, that's a really long time. It feels like eternity. Right. It's like four months. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're just like absolutely bagged. And then at the airport, they asked to see this piece of paper and she's like, yeah, here's the, um, the letter from her mom. She's allowed to travel with me. And then it was like, no, this is not eligible and it needs to be signed by a notary and it needs to be totally legit and you're not allowed to travel with this person. And so I get taken away into the back of the airport and like into these offices and I'm held there for 12 hours as a kid and I'm crying and this woman is long gone. She took the next flight, the woman I was traveling with. Where'd she go? I think she had to get the next flight. So I got ditched as like an 11 year old in LA airport. (laughs) I'm in the back and I'm just like, they're threatening to send me back to New Zealand. And it's like, Oh no, that's going to be way too long of a trip. Like, yeah, we're just going to send you straight back to New Zealand. Luckily my uncle in New Zealand is a lawyer. So my mom was there and it was like really late in New Zealand at this point. And they caught them like just before they left my uncle's place. So he wrote the letter and faxed it through back in the old days when people used faxes. And yeah, I was held there for forever in LA. And um, I don't know, it was really scary. Like one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me as a kid. Um, but yeah, eventually they got me through onto a new flight to Vancouver and that's where I came through and met my dad and his girlfriend and, uh, yeah, they picked me up and holy, it was so, so gnarly. And then I stayed for a few weeks and my dad, like, I feel like he knew I was he knew he was going to get me to stay. So he put me in school right away. And like, and then like, yeah, time went by and I was like, Hey, aren't I supposed to go back to New Zealand soon? And they're like, Oh, you should just stay. And then I was like, okay, great. And then my sister was still in New Zealand. And so she ended up coming over too. And so yeah, back with all the siblings together, but poor mom was left in New Zealand. I'm trying to figure out like how traumatic overall this was versus some traumatic moments like being, you know, shelved away at the L.A. airport for hours. But like, I'm just trying to think as an 11 year old, if I was in your shoes and I just made it to this other country and now it turns out I'm maybe just staying there. How did you take all this? Well, it was all exciting as an 11 year old. I don't know. You don't really, you don't in control of your life. So you are just going with whatever the adults are saying. Now that I'm adult, I know that adults are full of it. So yeah. a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows best. 
That's the secret they should tell us when we're little. Like, yeah. look, you're going to get older, but you're still going to largely be clueless. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to fake it. But yeah, all I was doing was listening to the adults around me. So I didn't really know if it was right or wrong or what was going on, but you know how it goes. You just, as a kid, you just go with it. All right. So you find yourself, you're like, I guess I live in Revelstoke now. Mm-hmm. Turns out there's a, uh, not only good mountain biking in those parts, there's also some pretty decent skiing and snowboarding. You got into this. Yeah, I did. And back then in Revelstoke, the ski hill was about 800 feet vertical, tiny little ski hill with tiny little diesel powered chairlift. And there was a freestyle ski team and there was a very, very small group of mountain bikers, probably about six of us that liked to do downhill. And that was our crew. We did downhill mountain biking and I was on the freestyle um, ski team. And that was kind of my life as a kid and young teen. All right. Well, you know, we all kind of know how it turned out for you on a mountain bike. Turns out pretty good. <laughs> let, me, let me hear your review of yourself as a skier. Well, When I was 19, I came to a crossroads where the ski team wanted me to start training all year round and not risk mountain biking, like doing any mountain bike races or anything. So it was the hardest decision. I cried on the phone to my ski coach and I was like, I don't know what to do. This is this, this is so hard. Like it wasn't like a hard decision as in a good decision and a bad decision. It was like, where do you want your life to go? What do you want to do with your life? And the skiing thing was mapped out. It was, there was coaches, there was support, there's money in it. Like you have like Olympic dreams and stuff like that. Everything is mapped out with milestones and it's very, very, you have a lot of support right around you. The biking thing I didn't have that same map. There was, I wanted to be a free rider like my brother, but no girl has really done that. So I didn't know like how to get to a world cup or what the process of any of that was. And I, no one around me really knew either. Everyone was kind of just recreation, recreational mountain bikers. So I had to kind of figure all that stuff out on my own. And that was, I mean, looking at it now, it was a pretty big challenge and I definitely made a lot of mistakes along the way and um, a lot of learning. There was a lot of learning (laughs) to have, yeah. So you kind of have this whole trajectory mapped out, plotted out, set up for you as a skier. You love skiing and mountain biking. I think that's safe to assume. So what got you to go, you know, when you hit this fork in the road, what got you to go the other direction where, as you just said, a whole lot less was plotted out and you're kind of like, there is no future for you to look at or a path forward. Well, I think that because my brother had recently passed away and that was his passion. I think that was another way for me to try and get closer to something that was really far away. So again, we found the connection with bikes. Yeah. I think that was what made me decide to go the mountain biking route. Wow. 
That's kind of remarkable. So, I mean, it absolutely makes sense. And it's really kind of touching and beautiful on the one hand. But now, I mean, how much of this is just like, there's a sheer force of will that has to go into actually making happen what you've gone on to be able to make happen. It's definitely a risk. And it was way more risky than the skiing thing. Like the skiing thing seemed like an easier option, but didn't like my gut didn't tell me to do that. So I went with my gut feeling and, um, yeah, definitely like took a leap and I had no idea what I was doing. Like (laughs) no idea. Um, all I knew was to just keep riding and keep pushing to try and get support as a mountain biker. So tell us about what that looked like. You're entering races or you are just reaching out to some different potential sponsors. Walk us through what this looked like for you. So it would be entering BC Cups or Canada Cups, but still not knowing like anything about the point system or how to get to a World Cup or what, how you can get funding for that or anything like that. And then... Also going down to Interbike, like going down to trade shows and like doing up a stupid little resume that was terrible probably at the time. But honestly, what it said on that resume was exactly what I'm doing now. Like what my goals were, were exactly what I'm doing now. So I think it has a lot to do with staying true to yourself. Like no matter what, you're always coming back to who you are, not fitting into the mold of whatever you see looks successful to you. That's already been done. You got to kind of bring it back to yourself and make sure you're doing what makes you feel good. Two questions. One, do you still have that resume? Oh, oh, it's somewhere deep in the archives. I'd have to dig. That'd be amazing to pull that out. Related question. (laughs) What were some of the things written on that? You're not allowed to be humble right now. We have a rule. You got to like take off the humility cap. What was on this resume? One of the lines I remember, like one of the like statements at the top was, I want to be the forefront at the forefront of female free ride mountain biking. And that was like the first thing that was on the top of that resume. That's very badass. And nobody bit. No one at Interbike wanted anything to do with me. (laughs) Like year after year, I'd go down there and it'd be just like, oh, so frustrating. (laughs) But that was fine because who's going to listen to a 19-year-old kid? Yes. What what year is this? Help me with the timeline. This would have been 2009, 2008, 2009 probably 2010. I went down a lot. And had that same thing written at the top of the paper. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd write new ones every year, but yeah, have all my results. And then, yeah. It's such a cool thing. It's so good for literally everyone out there on earth who's got dreams and a vision for doing anything. Be clear on those dreams and get ready to have people not get it, not see it. You know, those who have the talent and the grit and the determination to to get past those waves of doubters 
and stay true, as you already said. It's like that's who ends up being the pioneers. It's true. And I had to take a big detour to get there. And that that was part of the learning that had to happen for me, I guess. So that was, um, yeah, when you think of your goals, you think of them in a straight line from A to B, but there is so many pit stops on the way. And some of them are taking a step back and, you know, it's it's all a learning opportunity. So can we talk about the detours? Yeah. So 2011, I was injury-free because after my brother passing away, I spent a couple years being pretty injured after like crashing. I broke my pelvis. I split my liver in half. I did all kinds of bad things that were, uh, yeah, I just wasn't, I guess I was just not in the right place. Um, but yeah, injury-free, I qualified for my first world champs to be, to ride for team Canada. And that year they were helping their athletes to get to it. So like cycling BC was helping or cycling Canada was helping pay for part of the way. So we did some fundraising and the race was in Switzerland at Champery. Um, the famous Danny Hart run. <laughs> I was there for that. <laughs> You were. <laughs> yeah. So that was my first experience on the world stage. And it was terrifying because all of practice was pretty dry. And then all of a sudden the skies opened up and it felt like you were just on the chopping block at the, in your start, in the start gate. You're just like, I'm going to go and die down this mountain right now. <laughs> like on the verge of tears, just like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, I think that makes you sane <laughs> to have that type of reaction. That's like a, you know, sanity test. And I think you passed yeah. <laughs> with that reaction, except you still went. I still did it. And I crashed like 12 times and it was great fun. But so after that, I got noticed by a trainer from Performax and he offered me a spot on his team the next year. It was a pay to play program. So I had to save up a bunch of money to do a couple of world cups and do some races and get a bike from common cell and, you know, kind of get kitted out with the proper gear. So it was my first experience, like having that kind of support. And that was cool. Um, so went down to sea otter and then went to my first world cup in Mont St. Anne. And I was, yeah, never been to Mont St. Anne before. And I, got sixth place in my first world cup, which was really good. Um, I guess <laughs> people were excited. So I guess it was really good. Well, wait a sec. How did you feel about it? I mean, every time I do a race run, I feel indifferent. Like it's just like, if I win it or if I do crappy, it's just like, I mean, it's more like if people are happy for me, then I'm stoked. I'm stoked to make other people happy, but racing itself doesn't, doesn't really light my fire. It's uh it's an interesting one. Yeah. This is very interesting right now. You just said you really don't care about results in races, but you like when other people seem to get happy about your results. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody who has quite put it like that. Yeah, it's great to make people happy, right? If you have like people that were rooting for you or people that are big fans and you do well for them and they they're happy about it. It's great. <laughs> All right. So maybe this is why we don't necessarily find you race focused 
these days. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you take sixth. Yep. You're sort of indifferent, but other people are happy, so you're kind of happy. Yeah. And then? And then uh, I race Wyndham and get like seventh or something, and then I come back and get national champs and win that. It was like my breakout year. I came in and I had a bit of support, and it was like kind of what kind of helped me get there, you know? So yeah, that was 2012 breakout year. Went and got queen of crank works, won a bunch of stuff there. Yeah. It was, it was the first time I'd ever trained in the gym all winter for a season. So, and I trained hard. Like I listened to everything my coach said and I did everything. And I was like, Pretty, uh, pretty ripped. <laughs> and that was just a, that was kind of a new world to you. Yeah. I had been like, kind of had the free ride attitude about it. Like, nah, I don't need the gym. I ride bikes. Bikes make me fit. But then, yeah, just putting all your trust into a process and doing it. And, and uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. What are current attitudes of yours toward the gym? Um, I think the gym is a great place to prepare yourself for the real world. I struggle to do it alone. Like going in there and just hammering out a bunch of workouts alone is really tough, but I, I go three times a week and I think it's super important to kind of do those deliberate movements to prepare yourself for all those movements that you're doing on your bike that are maybe not as deliberate that may be, I don't know. I, I think it's just good for injury prevention and making yourself durable and healthy and building strong bone mass and muscle mass and staying at a certain level. You might not think of it quite this way, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So for you, gym time if you had to rank them or you're welcome to not rank them and kind of give them sort of an equal level of importance. But do you think that the gym time is like more beneficial in terms of injury prevention or faster recovery after crashes? Or do you think the gym time is helping you actually ride at a higher level? I think both. I think both equally, like if I was to just say ski tour all winter, that'd be great, but I'm only working one, um, one part of myself and I'm probably not going to have a whole lot of muscle mass on my arms. So, um, the upper body thing is really important for women, especially mountain biking. Cause it is a full body sport. It's not road riding. It's not even cross country riding. If you're riding downhills and like hitting hard compressions, you need to have like a strong upper body that doesn't generally come naturally for most women. Strong legs. Yeah. All day, but strong arms, not so much. <laughs> well, given that if you were like, this is a weird question, but so what? If it was like, all right, you are still allowed to go to the gym three days a week, but you only get to do, say, one or two exercises or lifts, given what you just said, what would you go with? Okay. So these are things that require gym equipment, probably deadlifts. 
deadlifts would be number one and deadlifts and squats probably squats is definitely like my number one just even though you just said like you know you'd still you know you're not worried about length leg strength it's about upper body strength yeah but i just still feel like when i don't deadlift actually i used to and i don't anymore for better or for worse but squats to me is like when when a squat is done when you're whatever is strong for you personally or strong for me if the squat is on point usually that's a real good indicator for like in terms of being able to ski at a high level or mountain bike you know at a decent level for me i agree and it's not just legs with a squat you're using a lot of core and same with deadlift i think just having a really strong core for your arms and legs to attach to (laughs) is really important it's your it's your foundation so yeah thinking about injury prevention or like i i broke my neck in a backcountry ski accident several years ago and it was bad but the recovery actually was super fast and i'm you know after surgery and hardware installed and the like but i i still always think like the gym time in advance of that injury and building up like traps and having a relatively strong back and shoulders in the rest i give a ton of credit to the gym time for why there wasn't an even worse outcome, you know, for what happened that day. And it sounds like you would, you'd be in that camp. Absolutely. Like covering yourself in muscle mass is just protecting all the important parts of you. Yeah. As long as you're, you're staying flexible, like semi-flexible and your mobility is good, then load it on. <laughs> yeah. Quick departure you know, you're talking about, you know, this detour. Was there any point where you gave serious consideration to like maybe hopping back on or hopping over to the ski side of things? Um, I feel like the ski thing had a really like quick time limit. Like it expired quickly because mogul skiers, like usually they do well when they're super young. And then they succumb to injury and they're done. <laughs> and that was your deal, mogul skiing. Yeah, mogul skiing was my deal. I was, yeah, that was kind of big air and moguls was me. I missed it for sure. I missed the structure of it and everything like that. And I think that's when mountain biking, when it added that structure in with the with the team and stuff, that's when I was like, okay, this is this could actually work. A little bit of structure helps. And then yeah, I got swapped onto a Norco team after that, Dirt Norco, another pay-to-play program. Like, you're not making any money. You're literally working all winter in order to pay for the support that you're getting. So it's it was pretty hard to, like, make enough money and train at the same time and make sure that all your ducks in a, are in a row. It was, like, yeah, definitely hard. And then after Norco, I was on Bergamon two years a German company and it was a very loose program <laughs> very loose program and that was when I came to another crossroads the end of my two-year contract I was so beat down and like like so done with it that I was like okay I'm either gonna go get a real job and not be a mountain biker anymore or give it one last shot. So I went to Eurobike 
um, which is a huge trade show, way bigger than Interbike, about six times the size at least. And I went to go to this trade show. And at the time I'd been dealing with this tooth that had broken off because I hit my hand, my hit my teeth on my handlebars when I was like 12 and it killed the tooth, like my front tooth. And then early on in the season, I was eating a fig or something or a baguette and it broke off above the gum line. And so I had this like flip tooth that the dentist had made and it was meant to be a permanent one. But the thing would just like, I'd use it to get through security. But most of the time I would just run no tooth because I didn't care. Running toothless. I was toothless and ruthless for a good year. And it was like through my whole, whole like last year, like, yeah, it was rough. And, um, so the dentist had made me this tooth and I was in the shower, like ready to go get ready to go to this trade show the next day. And the tooth falls out and went down the drain. And so I was getting geared up to go and try and sell myself as a mountain biker. (laughs) And I had a missing tooth. Is that when you immediately coined the phrase toothless and ruthless? (laughs) Yeah. Where you're like, I better just lean into this. I uh, definitely leaned into it hard. And I, and when you look like that, you have to own it so hard. You can't like try and hide it because everyone's going to look at you. Like, what are you doing? Trying to hide that is not, you're not doing well. So I went and tried, made another resume, had it all dialed in and I, had on this resume that I was like, didn't want to do full world cup seasons. And I wanted to transition into more of a free rider and nobody bit, nobody wanted anything to do with it. Years later, still (laughs) there was a couple like it, like semi-interested brands, but I feel like every time I've went and like tried to go and get help or like you know, asked for help. It's always been turned around. Like every time I've, I've had a sponsor, like actually work for me, it's like, they approach me. It's never me going after them. So I don't know if that's something for people to kind of resonate with. (laughs) Don't try. (laughs) Don't try. (laughs) Trying is overrated. Just let it happen. I mean, what what would your advice be actually today for men or women trying to come up and make it? I mean, you just said in your own experience, it never really worked when you were trying to sort of push the issue forward. But I mean, they have to, don't they? Or no? Yeah, that might just be a me thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, what if someone has all their teeth? I know. What if they look good? What if they actually look good? <laughs> What if they have that going for them? Hmm. All different ball game there. I think just staying authentic, not, not trying to be anyone else, but yourself. Like there's a lot of people out there that kind of pick and choose parts of, I don't know what they think is looks successful and they try and build themselves and it's not real. It's not authentic and you can see right through it. So I think just being authentic and, staying optimistic. Anyone that's kind of throws a hissy fit or like gets grumpy and like, ah, it's just, it's not inspiring. And I think 
people want to be inspired. And even when shit hits the fan, you got to love it. That's part of it. And this is actually something I know about you from a, from a slightly earlier conversation we were having where I think the quote was, and I love this, you actually said, I do well when shit hits the fan. <laughs> yeah. First of all, that's phenomenal. What an amazing like life skill. I'm not sure that I can say the same. But yeah, I think if anybody wants to have like any success just as a human being living a human life, probably a really good skill to have to be able to like do well when shit hits the fan. <laughs> that is something that you I mean, you've clearly identified that as something in your wheelhouse. Yeah. And I think that comes from a lifetime of experience of shit hitting the fan constantly. <laughs> Toothless and ruthless. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, um, knowing that you're going to be okay, even if you, even if it's like everything's going wrong, you're still going to be all right. As long as you know, you're in all right health. Yeah. I think just staying positive and keeping that positive attitude is super important. So, okay. What year on the timeline, you're toothless and ruthless and you have your resume still, and it still says the line that's been there since, I guess, 2011-ish? 2008. 2008? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why I love conversations like this. And I don't know, you are somebody, frankly, to me and probably a lot of others where it's just easy to look at you and and be like, Casey's got it. Like, she's it. This is what we're we all would aspire to have this type of life and to have this type of career. And I, maybe there are people out there who know exactly all the detours and the speed bumps and the like in a path. But um, I never, ever, ever get tired when talking with high level folks that are, say, currently doing real well in a given profession, regardless of the profession. To hear exactly, because this story happens all the time, almost never in the hundreds and hundreds of conversations that I've had, sort of like this, almost never is somebody like, well, I decided I want to do this and then everything was real simple, <laughs> right? And, and now that just all kind of happened and there's the boring story and it's great. I have an amazing life, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think that we still somehow from afar, either the origin stories and the path, we either just, it doesn't get the focus or we forget, or it never got sort of put in the light. But I think it's really powerful to hear you laying this out like this. So you talked about how important your brother was and what an inspiration, but did you have other, were there other riders that you were looking up to? There were some other riders, like local people in Revelstoke, and they were, they were all just recreational type of riders. Um, I didn't, really have any like I didn't I, I was a big fan of like the new world disorder movies when I was young like that was when those came out every year like that was the that was like Christmas like new world disorder coming out and Red Bull Rampage was like Christmas like those are the most exciting things for me and I think those two things were kind of my hero. 
Okay, so let's talk about the first time you saw a Rampage competition. Now, here's another sanity test, because I'd say most sane people would be like, holy crap, that's something I will never do because that's just completely terrifying. Apparently, this wasn't quite your reaction. I mean, as a kid, I would limit myself like that. I would be like, that is amazing, but I'll, I'll never be able to hit a drop that big or I'll never be able to do that. Like I still had those limiting thoughts like any human would. And I, yeah, it was scary, but that excited me like scary and excitement kind of were a gray, like blended area for me. The first time I saw rampage, I went down to Red Bull rampage in 2008 and watched it in real life right after high school on my trip to Mexico in my van. I did van life before van life was a thing. <laughs> pioneering, pioneering once again. <laughs> I didn't even take many photos, damn it. <laughs> yeah, you blew it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have a Pendleton blanket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I drove down there in my Delica van. Japanese van. Um, yeah. And camped out at the old rampage site for two weeks and rode some zones when I was like 18, just graduated. Yeah. And then yeah, watch rampage in real life. Watch my friend Garrett. He was actually one of my yeah good friends from when I was a really young kid because I'd come over to Canada and Garrett Bueller was, was here and would hang out with his family. So Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really cool to see it in real life and watch the whole evolution of Rampage from that era. And this definitely planted a seed for you. Definitely at a young age for sure. Yeah, it was crazy. I never thought that I would pursue Rampage as something that I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be good at riding that kind of terrain, but when an event is limited to just guys, it's something that kind of, you don't really think about doing yourself. And still like most of the people that ride in rampage don't want to be there. Like they're not, it's not something that they are excited to do. It's actually like a really terrifying, scary thing that I feel like isn't portrayed enough in the event itself. Like it's, terrifying being up there especially when the risk is so high like those guys are sending it off huge stuff and, the, and there's wind and you have to go even if it's windy and there's not enough like I don't know it's just real gnarly and that's kind of what caught me out at proving grounds is that pressure like when you get the the countdown you're like okay you have 10 minutes to choose your window and you're standing at the top and you notice that the wind has been picking up ever since the first rider dropped. And you're like, I better go now. Otherwise in 10 minutes, the wind will be worse. And you don't even think about maybe I don't go. <laughs> and that was, that was a, yes, a silly mistake I made not giving myself that option to not do that run because everyone after me crashed and the, from then on, the event was on hold until the evening. Okay, so you, I mean, as a rider, 
you knew like this isn't right like there's too much wind to go do what i need to do and yet as a competitor as somebody looking to qualify for rampage you overrode override the signals <laughs> yeah yeah you overrode the signals yeah. and and went anyway yeah and and so okay so in high which I understand. I mean, I, I I get why you did it, but in hindsight, you are now clear. Say the next time around, if 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 the wind's too big, you drop when it's time to drop, and you don't drop if it's not. Yeah, and that's a super hard call because it's such a gray area with the wind. Oh, it's the enemy, really. It's just like you can't really tell how windy it's going to be four jumps down, really. Like maybe it's dead down there. Maybe it's just windy up here and it'll be okay when I get there. You know, it's kind of just the, the invisible devil. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. Yeah. It's funny. I, I think like there's maybe at least a few people listening to this being like, huh, of the line choices of the various jumps of everything else going on on a big mountain venue, like rampage, the idea that wind is probably first and foremost maybe by a mile mm -hmm. the biggest thing i think for people many of us who just kind of ride bikes normally you know it's like probably we don't spend a tenth you know or a hundredth or a thousandth of the amount of time thinking about what's the wind like it's so interesting too because temperature and wind is plays a fairly big role in airtime and how much resistance you have riding your bike. Like if it's cooler out, it's going to be a little slower because air's thicker. When it's hotter out, the air is a little thinner. So you may have a teeny little bit more speed, kind of like a helicopter, like easier to take off in the winter than in the summertime. Helicopters can usually lift more when the air's thicker. So was that the biggest lesson from Proving Grounds? And and one, was that the biggest lesson? Two, there must have been other, a number of other moments in your career where you were making judgment calls. Yeah, and I think that that is one lesson that constantly comes back to me is, you know, overriding the warning signs when I shouldn't have not, not going with your gut feeling, like kind of overriding your gut feeling because of the pressure of the event itself. Okay. So how many times in your career do you think you have overridden some of the warning signs, but got away with it? Oh, I don't know. Like a, like a bunch or very rarely. That's a hard one. Cause it, when you get away with it, you don't, Right. You don't really you count it. You don't count it yeah. as much. Yep. It's like, yeah, it's a test that, yeah, people need to count that stuff more often. And we only count the negative things. <laughs> um, but I've, yeah, I've definitely learned that, not learned it obviously well enough, but I've experienced that same lesson a few times. And it's like, damn it. <laughs> I knew. <laughs> it's really tricky because I think any mountain biker literally regardless of what level they're at you could be you're brand new we're always getting 
either slightly out of our comfort zone or a lot out of our comfort zone, right? Regard whether you're an expert or whether you're pretty new to mountain biking. And that's part of the deal, right? I don't know that there is that I'm aware of any real calculus to how to do this or think about it other than if you're like really, so I'm curious what your thoughts are, but is it just kind of like, look, if those warning signals are just going real loud in the moment, respect that? Or do you have anything smarter or more helpful to say on that? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to experience. And um, when you don't have the experience, you need to trust your gut feeling more because your gut's going to tell you there's, we have, yeah, it's, it's a sensory that we need to pay more attention to. And when you're new at something, that's kind of what you're relying on a little bit heavier than common sense or knowledge. Cause you don't know enough. So I think no matter what level you are at, just going down to that kind of cellular level and trusting your gut feeling. And the more you listen to it, the more you'll be able to tell what it's saying. And it's always a work in progress for me. Cause I mean, I still, I still mess up obviously and still have tough, tough run-ins. So moving us forward a bit, I want to just ask you about formation. Just tell us a bit about the progression of formation and, you know, where things are at today. And obviously like you've, you know, played a significant role in this. Talk to us a bit about it. The first formation, the last one, the, the inaugural event there in Utah, I was still injured from my crash at Proving Grounds, so I didn't participate. I was there on more of a mentor level. And I, yeah, I, I just gave as much knowledge and help as I possibly could and offered, um, yeah, as much as I could really, it wasn't much, but just to be part of it and to, to see everyone riding in the desert and getting better and better and figuring out how they're going to make, make their lines and build it. Um, that was a really cool thing to be part of, to see all these girls that I have known in the mountain bike industry for a long time, uh, have this unique experience. Yeah, it was, it was really special and I'm excited to go down and ride. When is it? It's May 25th. I'll be heading down a little bit early just to get some riding in and see some, see some old friends. How are you feeling currently, by the way? You feeling good? You healthy? I'm healthy. I, um, I had two surgeries last fall in November and I've just been working at making sure that they don't hinder me. These, the new scar tissue and I mean... The shoulder still might need another surgery, but I'm going to, I have to run this year out and maybe do that, revisit that option in the fall. But generally I feel pretty good. I've been riding my bike a little bit, um, but just getting the cobwebs out right now. And, um, yeah, I feel like the work that I've done over the winter is going to help me be able to fast track my riding a little bit more than normal. So, Yeah. So I need to let you get going, but before I do, we've spent a lot of time and you've done an amazing job just detailing sort of this trajectory and, and story of yours, but just keep thinking about, you know, the resume and the goal of sort of leading and being at the forefront of women's free riding. And it's like, well, fast forward to today, 
and women's free riding is stronger than it's ever been. Just talk to me a little bit about that. That's, I think, I would think has got to feel kind of amazing to you. It does. It's incredible. What's really incredible is not seeing girls have to do that detour anymore. Like once you see girls that are getting support without having to go in world cup race and without having to do things that don't come naturally to them, that is success in women's free ride. Like with Hannah Bergman getting all that support now and she's, she, yeah, didn't have to do the big detour, which is really great. And I think that's going to make women's free ride fast track even further because they're not going to waste five years of their youth or not necessarily it was a waste, but you know, spend it doing something. Yep. Fat fast tracked to let people with the vision get there and do their thing faster than you were able to. Exactly. So I think that that is success and yeah, not, not seeing girls have to go and race first. It's great. Where do you think women's free riding goes from here? I mean, what's your what's your vision of the of the say near future and let's say by that I mean the next 5 to 10 years. I think we're going to see a lot more events like formation and that event in New Zealand future grounds. Like it'll start out with those events like the progression focused events and then I think we're going to see a lot more women at fest series. We're going to see a lot more women kind of going into those other events that aren't races and more women creating good content that is kind of groundbreaking. And once you get support for free riders, there's like free riding women, there's going to be a lot more joining the pool and there's going to be a lot more women doing it. And, um, that was, it was hard to see when I was growing up, you'd see women like try and go for it and then they'd get shut down and then they'd go get a real job and kind of not follow through with their dreams. And now we're, there's an opportunity for that. And we're going to see this free ride world kind of explode, I think on the women's side. And all those women coming up, have you in large part to thank for that? And that's just amazing. And thank God for pioneers in every walk of life and in every field. And, you know, by the way, you ain't done just to be clear, right? Like we're, we're, (laughs) we're still, you know, we're still expecting some more out of you and are going to be tuning in. (laughs) Yeah. It's just really cool to be able to talk to the folks that have paved the way for others in certain areas. I really appreciate you laying out kind of this trajectory and and I also equally appreciate your enthusiasm for what this next crop of riders is going to be doing and showing us and the rest and um I, I, both of those things are uh, are evident. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the next few years of with the women's free ride side of the sport. It's going to be super exciting and uh yeah, I'm just I'm just so glad that I could be a small part of it or a big part of it. You know, who's to say? Okay, <laughs> I got to let you go, but we like to end these conversations <laughs> by asking what your current big idea is. 
I asked you before we started, you know, recording if you had something here, and turns out you do. Well, it's more of a question to put out there. Like, why? You know, when you go into a public bathroom and there's a paper towel dispenser and it's electric and you got to wave your hand in front of it like some kind of magician. Right. And sometimes they don't even work. When the old ones, you just pull a paper towel out the bottom and another one is there sitting without any kind of crazy technology. Why did we have to complicate this process? (laughs) Right. So this is less of a big idea per se and more of a big question. I have no answer for you. Well, I think it, it just comes down to the quote of turning around and taking a step forward. Who, whose quote is this? Did you, is this your quote? (laughs) Turning around and taking a step forward? Those who know will know. I'll leave it there. (laughs) Or perhaps another way to put this is, and this is to quote you actually, it's in our nature maybe to tend to overcomplicate things. You believe this? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah. Keep it simple. Just keep it simple. I really want you to tell me who the quote is from. Yeah, I think it's Yvonne Trenard. That would check out. You'll, you'll leave me with a little homework. That seems <laughs> fair. I've kept you a long time. All right. Well, here's to you keeping things simple, I guess. But mostly, I mean, I kind of think here's to you. Like, I hope this next five weeks is really productive in terms of like getting back and feeling really good and comfortable on a bike. and and getting ready for for May 25th. Yeah, I'm excited for it. It's going to be great. We also learned that you may have had like the world's first mullet bike, which was amazing. I'm so happy that we <laughs> we we covered that ground. And uh yeah, you you've been a pioneer on multiple fronts. You know, so for all those reasons, Casey, it has been a pleasure to talk. I can't wait to see what this next year has in store for you and looks like and yeah, can't wait for formation next month. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. All the best to you and yeah, good luck and and happy, happy training. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks so much to Casey for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.